Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Good evening, everyone. I'm Trish Keller, the local chair of the Order of Australia Association branch. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to this ANU lecture tonight. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land, and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present. As I said, welcome to you all, but also to our branch patron, patron General Peter Gratian, AC, OBE, and his wife Anne, uh, to our guest speaker and his wife Barbara, and to Professor P Peter Konoski, Master of University House, academic members of the ANU fraternity, the Order of Australia branch committee and association members and guests. We've had an apology from Professor Ian Young, AO, who's the Vice-Chancellor, and I'd just like to give you a quick rundown of the um, rationale for the oration and the other lecture, which is um, the oration is held at ADFA, in the Russell offices and the lecture, as you know, is being held right here. But it was an initiative of our association, the ACT branch, which commenced in 2010 with the purpose to extend the range of programs offered to branch members and to further recognise the important contribution made by distinguished military and academic members of the Order of Australia to the fabric of Australian society. So the lecture is held here for academic, media, business, professional, political, community leaders, all of Australia members and guests. At the conclusion tonight, participants are invited to contribute to an apolitical Q&A um, on the issue that Professor Podger is going to talk about tonight. Just a few questions. Um, and in the past, the inaugural lecture was delivered by Emeritus uh, in Vice-Chancellor Professor Ian Chubb, AC, followed by um, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, John Warhurst, AO, followed by the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian Young, AO, and 2013 we had the Nobel Laureate, Bra uh, Professor Brian Schmidt, AC, and last year Professor David Lindenmeyer delivered the 2014 lecture. So, and now I'd like to invite Professor Peter Konoski, Master of University House, to welcome you to the house. Peter. Uh, thanks, Trish, and I add my welcome to you all. It's great to welcome the Association uh, back to University House for this annual lecture. Uh, as many of you know, University House was established to be, in part, uh, to be a venue in which events such as this evening's lecture, uh, which link the life of the university to the life of the community more generally, uh, could take place. Uh, and the Order of Australia Association lecture series is a great manifestation of that purpose, and I welcome you 
all, Peter and members. Um, I'd like to reiterate the apology from our current Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian Young. Uh, he was meaning to be here. He's, to go, he's uh, travelling to the US uh, earlier than he had uh, intended to, so I, I also um, reiterate his apologies. Uh, particularly welcome Andrew as an ANU colleague, uh, and I thank Len and his committee for their organisation. It's great to continue this partnership with you. Look forward very much to this evening. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you very much, Peter. And now I'd like to invite Len Goodman, AO, the convener of this lecture, and in fact the convener of all the lectures and the orations, to introduce our guest speaker. Thanks, Len. Thank you, uh, Trish, and our uh, guest uh, this evening. <coughs> Now, Professor Andrew Podger is a long-term and widely experienced public servant before joining academia. Amongst his senior appointments were Public Service Commissioner 2002-04, Secretary of the Australian Department of Health and Aged Care and various designations, 1996-2002, Secretary of the Australian Department of Housing and Regional Development, 94-96, and Secretary of the Australian Department of Administrative Services, again with various designations before that. He's also Deputy Secretary of Defence in charge of acquisition and logistics and held senior executive roles in departments of finance and social security. He also worked with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the Social Welfare Commission and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, mostly on social statistics and social policy. Before leaving the APS in 2005, he chaired a review of the delivery of health and aged care services for then Prime Minister John Howard. And since then, he's been adjunct professor at ANU and Griffith University, and in China at Xi'an Tong University, and visiting professor at Zhejiang University. He'd been an advisor to governments in Australia and Asia on aspects of public administration, social policies, and public sector management, and is frequently invited to present at international forums such as the International Institute of Administrative Studies and the American Society of Public Administration. Professor Podger was appointed Professor of Public Policy at ANU on a part-time basis in 2010. Prior to that at ANU, since 2005, he's published articles on social policy and public management and coordinated workshops with academic experts and practitioners on issues of contemporary relevance to government including Greater China-Australia Dialogue on Public Administration, the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and the H.C. Coombs Policy Forum. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Pure Mathematics from Sydney University, is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences of Australia, a National Fellow of the Institute of Public Administration Australia and a Fellow of the Australian New Zealand School of Government. Professor Podger was appointed an Officer in the Order of Australia, AO, in 2004 for service to the community in the development and implementation of public policy relating to health and aged care. So indeed, he is highly qualified to address us this evening on the subject for this OAA ANU lecture, Federalism and Australia's National Health and Health Insurance System. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Len, for those kind words, and thank you, Trish Keller and Peter Grayson, the patron. Uh, it's a great honour to deliver this lecture 
that the Vice-Chancellor asked me to do. I'm not in fact an ANU graduate, but I have been involved in the university since 1970, and for some reason I've been accepted in the alumni. I never completed the degree I began here, even though I did complete a major in public administration. But I did once edit, not very well, Waroni, the student newspaper, and I was vice president of the Students' Association when Richard Reshorgi was president. I've maintained close links with the university throughout my public service career. I helped Ron Mendelssohn in 1976 with his most substantial book, The Condition of, Pe of the People, developing the statistics on expenditure by the Commonwealth and each state and territory for every year from 1901 to 1970. Ron was at the ANU on leave from the APS at the time, and he later joined full-time Professor Russell Matthews at the ANU's Centre for Research on Federal Financial Relations. That centre played a most constructive role, not only in its research on federalism, but also in hosting seminars and workshops for practitioners and academics on a range of public policies. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, I presented a number of papers with colleagues on social security that were later published by the centre. It was through those seminars that I got to know Professor Fred Gruen and Dr Bob Gregory, who continued the ANU effort to engage closely with public servants grappling with social and economic issues. ANU has always had a particular role in assisting the national government by ensuring research evidence is available to inform decision making. ANU's policy research expertise today is, best, most, is perhaps most apparent in the Crawford School of Public Policy, but in fact it exists right across the university with experts in every college able and willing to contribute. My lecture today is on a particularly important, if perennial, Australian issue, the future of our federal system with a particular focus on health. It is an issue that would benefit from closer interaction between academics and practitioners, but one that also requires much more informed public discussion and engagement. So let me start off talking a little bit about federalism. The subsidiarity principle emerged in Europe in the Middle Ages, as the Catholic Church grappled with managing its vast empire. In essence, the principle is that responsibilities should be managed at the lowest or most local level where the public interests concerned are shared. Higher level intervention may only be justified if there are genuine interests beyond the local community to be considered. The principle has several benefits, including responsiveness to local conditions and preferences, a check on central power and potential efficiency gains as each local community weighs up the costs and benefits of government. Federal systems differ from decentralised government in that the sub-national governments have sovereignty and not just delegated authority. Thus they apply the principle of subsidiarity in a way that involves much more autonomy, including the making of laws and the power to negotiate with other governments, including the national government, rather than be ruled or overruled by the centre. There are many forms of federations. Ours was originally a, a coordinate federation where responsibilities are distinguished and each government is able to exercise sovereignty over its areas of responsibility. This was done in Australia with minimalist powers given to the Commonwealth, the outcome of the negotiations amongst the six colonies, anxious not to cede too many of their powers to the new fledgling national government. The states retained almost all of their broad-ranging powers under their own constitutions, but any law they pass that is inconsistent with a Commonwealth law under the power specified in its constitution is invalid. In effect, all the other powers remain with the states. Canada's constitution uses the reverse argument, arrangement to achieve the same end. 
It specifies the powers of the provinces, leaving the rest to the national government. Germany has a rather different approach, where most, public, most policy responsibility lies with the national government, but most administrative responsibility lies with the states, or the Bundeslander. These descriptions, however, greatly simplify the institutional arrangements involved, including the design of the legislature, the structure and authority of the judiciary, the administrative arrangements and the intergovernmental machinery. Those institutional arrangements will reflect each country's history, geography and culture. The descriptions also fail to reveal the dynamic nature of any federal system as it adjusts to changing social, economic and technological circumstances. Our federation was forged out of the history of separate British colonial settlements, each operating under delegated British authority in a huge country with immense distances between capitals. Despite the geography, there was and remains a remarkable degree of homogeneity, at least amongst the non-Indigenous populations of the states. This may help to explain why the Australian Senate, unlike the Canadian Senate, never operated as a state's house, but from the beginning operated on a party basis. Party distinctions have always been seen as more significant than state differences. The steady accretion of power to the Commonwealth over the 20th century may also be explained in part by the considerable homogeneity of our population. More important, I suspect, has been changing social and economic circumstances driven by technological change. A large part of the shift has come through High Court decisions, and some Federalists, of course, complained that excessive judicial adventurism was involved. Yet it is most important to remember that in every case, the court was required by at least one constituent government to decide on constitutionality in the context of how to manage a particular and difficult public policy matter. That the answer tended mostly to involve a wider definition of Commonwealth power does not signify a centralist high court so much as the nature of the policy matters involved and the changing social, economic and technological context in which they had to be managed. The Australian experience of increasing national power is not unique though it has gone further than in many other federations. Most developed nations now face the challenge of highly mobile populations and capital, requiring the national government to collect most revenue. Most also have economies that are not only more nationally integrated, but also have substantial interaction internationally, requiring national governments to take more responsibility for economic regulation, transport, communications and so on. Modern communications technology and population mobility are also widening people's contacts and associations, weakening some local cleavages and strengthening national and international orientations. All these forces have been increasing the role of national governments, but not necessarily removing the responsibilities from sub-national governments. A common trend is an increase in shared responsibilities, with the challenge of managing such responsibilities well and ensuring proper accountability. The Australian Government is well advanced on a review of the Federation and is working closely with the states in the process. It didn't get off to a good start at the beginning, however, with the Commission of Audit pressing for each jurisdiction to be sovereign in its own sphere of responsibility, the 2014 budget unilaterally withdrawing promised funds to the states for hospitals and education, and the review terms of reference repeating the simplistic line about sovereignty in its own sphere. Fortunately, the discussion papers so far produced by Commonwealth officials convey more of the nuances of the issues and challenges Australia actually faces. The papers offer options not only for a significant shift of responsibilities back to the states, but also some serious options that would shift some responsibilities further to the Commonwealth. 
Most importantly, they give a great deal of attention to the challenge of better managing the growing range of shared responsibilities. Commonwealth political leaders are yet to respond seriously to the substance of the issues and the options raised. Fortunately, there have been some signs of more leadership at the state level, particularly from New South Wales, assisted by some very capable state civil servants, some being refugees from the Commonwealth, I might add. Despite claims by the Commonwealth that tax reform must deliver lower, simpler and more efficient tax, the Premiers take the view that we will almost certainly need more revenues to pay for the services the community wants, whether delivered by the states or the Commonwealth. There are always ways to deliver government services more efficiently, and we do need to limit government expenditure to what the community and the economy can afford. But as we become an older society, and as we become wealthier and health outcomes be become increasingly important to us, it is inevitable that we will want to spend more on health and related services, and that that's likely to involve more public as well as private spending. Just as a shared approach to tax reform is needed, a shared approach to expenditure reform is needed, and the outcome is unlikely to involve a total split of responsibilities establishing sovereignty over revenue collections or expenditure policies. This is not to suggest no room for reform, but to suggest greater priority be given to improving how we manage shared responsibilities and focus more on achieving better health and education and housing outcomes and a more efficient economy rather than wasting effort on trying to re-establish a federation suited to 1901. Let me turn now to health and health reform. This is perhaps the policy area most adversely affected by current federal arrangements, despite the fact that on most measures our health system performs well, particularly in terms of life expectancy and years of healthy living. Commonwealth involvement in health goes back to federation with the Constitution specifying that power relating to quarantine was concurrently enjoyed by the Commonwealth. It was based on this power that the Commonwealth first established a Department of Health in 1921, following strong encouragement by the Rockefeller Foundation concerned about the influenza pandemic after the First World War. By that time, the Commonwealth was also extensively involved in healthcare through the Constitution's defence power, providing support for war veterans and their dependents under the repatriation system. Until the Second World War, the Commonwealth focused on public health and health and medical research and war veterans, but in line with the wartime compact to expand social service services after the privations of the war, developed, I might add, by a parliamentary committee assisted by a young Ron Mendelson, interest turned to developing a national health insurance system, complementing the national social security system that began with the introduction of age pensions in 1909. The 1946 constitutional change gave the Commonwealth new powers, including to provide, quote, medical and dental services, but not so as to authorise any form of civil, of civic, sorry, civil conscription, and, quote, pharmaceutical sickness and hospital benefits. The Chifley government then enacted the National Health Service Act, but it was never fully implemented. Instead, the Menzies government implemented what became known as the Page Plan, through regulations under Chifley's legislation involving the first pharmaceutical benefit scheme and a pensioner's medical service, which included grants to the states for hospital care, and then hospital benefits and a medical benefit scheme, both based on voluntary private health insurance. Under Menzies, the Commonwealth also entered the field of residential aged care, funding charitable organisations to provide nursing home and hostel care for eligible older Australians. And it operated large repatriation hospitals in every state. By the time of the Whitlam government, the Commonwealth was already dominant in the areas of non-hospital aged care, medical benefits and pharmaceutical benefits, and was involved with hospitals through funding to the states, 
hospital benefits for privately insured Australians and the direct operation of repatriation hospitals. Despite the public controversy surrounding the original Medibank proposals, Medibank did not represent a massive extension of Commonwealth involvement. It did, however, radically shift the health insurance system from subsidised voluntary private insurance to a universal public insurance approach. Whitlam kept an insurance model, despite the Labor, some Labor colleagues pressing for a British-style National Health Service, and he chose not to take over responsibility for hospitals, but to greatly increase grants to the states on condition that hospital services for all public patients would be free. Debates about universal health insurance continued throughout the 1970s and 1980s and into the 1990s, through a series of Medibank schemes under the Fraser government that wound back universal insurance, the resurrection of the original scheme by the Hawke government under the name Medicare, and promises by the Conservative opposition to abolish Medicare and to rely again on private health insurance. In 1996, however, John Howard promised to, quote, maintain Medicare in its entirety, and the scheme has had considerable bipartisan support ever since. Indeed, for the most part, the Howard government initiatives built on the Hawke-Keating developments, including in particular the strengthening of primary health care, moving away from just paying medical benefits to reshaping general practice, encouraging computerisation, bigger practices, incentives for better treatment of the chronically ill and improved immunisation and other screening. Bulk billing in fact increased, services for Indigenous Australians continued to be extended and services in rural and remote areas improved. The Commonwealth also greatly extended support of aged care beyond residential care, encouraging ageing in place and establishing stronger quality controls. The Commonwealth became more interested in health outcomes and the effectiveness of the health services it was funding, not just in health, fun health financing and insurance. Its agreements with the states on hospital funding began to identify performance and to promote increased efficiency, and working with the states it began to take a direct interest in quality and safety. By then the Commonwealth had withdrawn from directly managing its repatriation hospitals, but had developed sophisticated approaches to purchasing hospital services for veterans from both state and private hospital providers. I mention this long history in part to demonstrate the degree of bipartisanship involved in the increasing role of the Commonwealth in health, notwithstanding periods of bitter debate about the best approach to health insurance, but also to highlight the scale of Commonwealth involvement and the lack of any sense of public opposition to the Commonwealth widening its interest in healthcare services. Blurred accountabilities, however, remain a major problem, as our history of piecemeal developments has left the Australian system with a very confusing division of responsibilities and funding arrangements that has resulted in a so-called blame game. But there is no evidence of public support for transferring responsibilities away from the Commonwealth to the States. So what are the practical problems with current arrangements and where might future reform take us? In many respects, our biggest challenges are the flip side of our successes. Life expectancy has increased steadily at a remarkable pace, around one extra year of life every four years. Most of the increase is in years in healthy living, with the average period of incapacity declining as a proportion of our lives. Whereas the increase in life expectancy over most of the last century was a result of reductions in mortality amongst children and then amongst those up to middle age, meaning many more people reached age 50 than before, the increase in life expectancy since about 1970 has been driven more by reductions in mortality at older ages, meaning people having reached 50 live longer. This trend is continuing. Since 1970, mortality rates amongst those aged 50 to 64 and amongst those 65 to 79 have steadily fallen, 
We all have to die sometime, so the rates for those over 80 have increased. But now the rates for those aged 80 to 84 are actually falling. Projections suggest rates for those aged 80 to 89 may soon start to decline, with only rates for over 90s increasing. The downside of this remarkable success is that we have many more frail old people now, and more with chronic illnesses such as heart disease, cancer and diabetes, even while average years of health living are increasing at least as fast as life expectancy. Modern technology also means large numbers of people with chronic conditions are able to live comfortably and even independently, fully participating in society. But they and those with more debilitating conditions most often rely on a mix of services and medicines. So demand on our health system has shifted dramatically from people requiring episodic care via occasional visits to the GP or to a hospital, or finally to support in an aged care home, to the chronically ill and frail age needing a mix of support from GPs, specialists, hospital visits for surgery, physiotherapy, psychology, dialysis and so on. The AIHW estimates the chronically ill now represent about 80% of the burden of disease. Not all of the shift is age-related, with increasing concern about obesity in particular raising the risks of chronic illness at young as well as older ages. And there is the yawning gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous health, which demonstrates that there remain serious failures to address. But evidence suggests that these two require a holistic approach to health service delivery rather than reliance on separate service providers. This demand shift that has been underway for over 20 years now has exacerbated the boundary problems that have long existed in our health system. Problems that were already more serious in Australia because of the unique division of responsibilities between the Commonwealth and the states and between public and private health insurance arrangements. The challenge is to shift the architecture of the system away from an emphasis on the different types of providers and products, GPs, specialists, pharmaceuticals, hospitals, aged care facilities, to a focus on patients according to their particular health needs. Considerable effort has been made to move in this direction over the last 20 years or more. The gradual strengthening of general practice and encouragement of better management of chronically ill patients has begun to widen the healthcare services available, improve coordination and promote more continuity of care. The developing role of regional primary healthcare organisations, despite some unfortunate politicking and unnecessary disruptions recently, has the potential to facilitate better links between hospitals and primary healthcare and to lead to useful initiatives such as better out-of-hours GP services and other measures to reduce pressure on, on emergency rooms. This seems to have been most successful where partnerships have been forged between the organisations and the regional hospital networks managed by the states. The increasing role of aged care packages is also ensuring a more careful approach to responding to healthcare needs, offering services appropriate to individual needs and allowing more choice about where people may live. The packages also have the potential to reduce demand on hospitals. There have been major investments into information systems and there are signs of improving information exchange between GPs, specialists and hospitals. The goal of a single electronic health record is still a long way off, but we should not ignore the improvements that have been made. Further steps are on the agenda, amongst them the current MBS Review Task Force, which is examining the list of medical services on the MBS, and the Primary Healthcare Advisory Group, which is exploring further opportunities to reform primary healthcare, focusing on the management of people with complex and chronic disease. A tantalising possibility identified by the advisory group is to shift further from reliance on fee-for-service, which encourages more services, to other forms of funding for the chronically ill to promote continuity and coordination of care 
and better health outcomes. So, for example, GPs might be given a budget for their registered diabetic patients that could cover not only GP visits but also seeing a dietitian, having occasional physiotherapy and so on. As mentioned, in 2004, John Howard asked me to conduct a review into the delivery of health and aged care services. I reported in 2005 recommending a package of incremental reforms, most of which he and his health minister, Tony Abbott, accepted, including to widen Commonwealth involvement in aged care, invest further in primary health care, and invest further in information technology. I also recommended strengthening regional health service planning and coordination, but that idea was not pursued at the time. In the longer term, I suggested the Commonwealth should consider taking full financial responsibility for the health and aged care system based on a regional framework, advising that this was indeed viable, but also noting the scale and risks involved in such a reform. The Prime Minister and Health Minister agreed that in principle, the Commonwealth having full financial responsibility made considerable sense, but in view of the risks involved in any transition, they decided to focus attention on the incremental measures I had recommended. These I had emphasised were designed in part to make it easier sometime in the future to consider again a more radical structural reform. When he came into power in 2007, Kevin Rudd flirted with the idea of a full financial takeover, but he ended up pursuing a less radical, but by no means modest, set of reforms. He established the National Hospitals and Health Services Review, which recommended in 2010 substantial structural changes, which while falling short of a full Commonwealth financial takeover involved a major extension of Commonwealth involvement and funding. The report also identified an even more radical option for more careful study that will allow individuals to select their own insurer or healthcare manager to manage their Medicare health service entitlements in exchange for receiving their assessed Medicare risk-rated premium, what the uh, aficionados called managed competition and they called Medicare Select. Rudd did not pursue Medicare Select, but he did propose going somewhat further than the Bennett Report's main recommendations. In particular, increasing Commonwealth financial involvement in hospital financing in exchange for a share of GST revenue, as well as widening the Commonwealth's role in primary health and aged care as the Bennett Committee had recommended. This was clearly a bridge too far at the time, and the subsequent Gillard government negotiated a deal with the states confined to some but not all of the Bennett Report measures. Gillard retained the proposed regional primary health care organisations, unfortunately named Medicare Locals by Rudd, relying on these to work with state regional hospital networks and new regional aged care arrangements to soften boundaries between primary and acute care and between aged care and hospitals. This complemented the most expensive measure in the deal, the Commonwealth agreeing to share directly the risks associated with hospital services by replacing block grants to the states with payments directly to hospital networks for a fixed share of the, efficient of the efficient price, whatever the level of demand. The Abbott government's approach was confusing. While promo by promising not to cut health spending, Abbott had foreshadowed concerns both about spending levels and the role played by the Medicare locals. The Commission of Audit report not only suggested establishing a clearer division of responsibilities between the Commonwealth and the states, with each jurisdiction having sovereignty over its own area of responsibility, but that the Commonwealth should consider withdrawing from involvement in hospital funding. These ideas seemed to gain some official support when in the, 19, when in the 2014 budget the Commonwealth announced unilaterally 
that it was not proceeding with the risk-sharing arrangement agreed previously with the states, but returning to a form of block grants indexed to prices. Fortunately, the bureaucrats responsible for preparing discussion papers for the Federation Review have been able to convince their political masters to allow other approaches to be canvassed, ones that start by addressing the issues from the perspective of more effective and efficient health services and improved health outcomes. Of the five options identified in the paper prepared for the June COAG retreat, only one involved a significant transfer of responsibility to the states via full responsibility for public hospitals. Two options involved more sharing of responsibilities for care packages for the chronically ill and for regional purchasing agencies, and two involved transferring more responsibility to the Commonwealth via a new hospital benefit and via a health purchasing agency. There was no sign of support amongst Premiers for the first option, but comments by Pre Premier Weatherall suggest that there may well be support for the option of a Commonwealth hospital benefit. This could build on the Rudd-Gillard initiative for the Commonwealth to share the risk of growth in hospital epi episodes, at least to some proportion of the efficient price. In other words, future reform that would actually improve the health system is most likely to involve more Commonwealth financial involvement, not less, and probably more shared responsibilities, not fewer. The danger, however, is this will continue or increase the blurring of accountability and mean the blame game will continue. An approach that would limit this risk is to clarify respective roles within the areas of, of shared responsibility and to reform the way in which national policies are established when responsibility is shared. In particular, the Commonwealth might continue to increase its share of financial responsibility, playing the role of the national health insurer, while the states might increase their role in service delivery. To promote greater integration of services on the ground and more patient-oriented care, States need to continue to strengthen local and regional capacity for planning and coordination, working with the regional primary healthcare networks, and for local delivery, particularly in the case of public hospitals. This transformation has been underway for some time now and may take more time to complete, but it would be unfortunate if we were to reverse the process. Reforming the way national policies are established when responsibility is shared means giving the States a genuine place at the table it also means constraining the capacity of the Commonwealth to impose additional rules and processes that may limit local flexibility and innovation. Let me make a few comments about private health insurance and expenditure issues before I conclude. The role of private health insurance in our national health and health insurance system may also have significant implications for federal relationships. Regulation and support for private health insurance has been a Commonwealth responsibility since the early 1950s under the PAGE plan. Australia's approach to PHI is unique and uniquely confused. While Medicare provides universal health insurance cover, unlike the US, nearly half the population retains private health insurance cover and is encouraged to do so by government, unlike the UK or Canada. PHI covers members for hospital services they might otherwise use as public patients funded by Medicare and also offers choice of physician, greater amenity and the ability to reduce waiting times for various elective procedures and diagnoses. The confusion caused by the system is best demonstrated by that uniquely Australian question people face in emergency departments. Do you want to go public or go private? The right answer for anyone with private health insurance cover is really obvious. Now there are two main options for making our approach coherent and user-friendly. 
The first is to remove any government support for private health insurance and to allow it to play a residual role to the universal health, universal health insurer, Medicare, where people may choose to opt out at their own expense. The second is a Medicare select approach where Medicare can be managed by the funds or other health management organisations and people can choose to direct their Medicare risk rated premium to their preferred fund. I'm not going to go into details surrounding these two alternatives or the pros and cons involved. Either would make a lot more sense than current arrangements, but both would involve difficult political challenges. The reason for referring to them is to highlight the fact that only the Commonwealth can clarify the role of private health insurance. And this is fundamental to the design of the whole health system, including in particular the role of public and private hospitals. Most of what I've talked about tonight has been about reviewing federal relationships in health to improve the effectiveness of the health system. Another critical issue is the growing cost of the system and the risk that we are not achieving value for money and how we can improve efficiency and cost effectiveness. I haven't got time to go through all of that tonight, uh, but can I simply say that a number of areas where we ought to be doing things require the Commonwealth to be involved. It can't be just left to the states. Uh, the obvious ones are in the PBS and MBS, but also in the area of the efficient price for hospitals, which is delivering big savings. Uh, also on demand side, if we're going to have any co-payment arrangements, the current co-payment arrangements are very confusing and the Commonwealth needs to think about what sort of co-payment ought to apply right across the system rather than having a different one for PBS, MBS, hospitals and so on. But most importantly, for efficiency purposes, we need to be thinking about the allocation efficiency. That is, have we got the money right between hospitals, primary care and so on? And that allocation requires somebody to have an overview of the system. And you're not going to get that unless the Commonwealth is involved in that overview. Uh, most particularly, a surprising weakness in our national health system has been the failure for the Commonwealth to act as an insurer, to link existing data across the system and to analyse it to identify financial and health risks and to identify the additional data we need to identify both health needs and health outcomes and to track people over time. Such data would not only help the managers of our insurance system but also provide valuable feedback to clinicians and data for researchers. Some progress is now being made but we have a long way to go. The emerging regional health system arrangements also offer the potential to support better allocation of resources. The primary health networks may have small budgets but they have the flexibility to ensure that they are used to fill gaps and to improve important connections that could reduce hospitalisations and ensure more cost-effective care. Linking data could also allow each region to identify the cost of healthcare services to its population, allowing comparisons to be made against benchmark costs given the known health risks and against clinically ideal patterns of service utilisation. This could guide not only the regional primary health networks and hospital networks, but also those at the state and Commonwealth level in considering allocations of funds between regions. Returning to my overall theme of the health system's federal arrangements, there is little evidence to suggest that returning more responsibility to the states would promote greater efficiency. There is a strong case for a more integrated approach and continuing to move towards the Commonwealth being the national insurer, so long as the Commonwealth does more to act as an insurer and to pursue supply-side cost-effectiveness measures and establish a more coherent system of demand-side controls. Let me conclude. Australia's approach to federalism was recently described as pragmatic. While that is not entirely a positive description, 
encompassing as he does the occasional opportunist political game-playing, it is preferable to ideologically or theoretically driven approaches. Hopefully the reform process now underway will also have a positive, pragmatic flavour, focusing on tangible improvements in public services and increased efficiency rather than ideological considerations. After a rather troubling start to the Federation review process, I'm pleased that there are now signs of a greater focus on particular areas of public services, health, education and housing, and how changes in federal arrangements might improve their effectiveness and efficiency. While health reform in Australia has been marked by piecemeal incremental changes, the overall trend to increasing Commonwealth involvement, I would argue, has not been accidental or driven by power-hungry centralists. It has been shaped by broader national and international developments, including technological change in the maturing of our nation and its place internationally, and by a widespread desire for a national universal health insurance system. In many respects, the Australian health system performs well, but the emerging challenges demand a more integrated, patient-oriented system. This is likely to require a further shift towards the Commonwealth in terms of financial responsibility as the national insurer, but it also requires close cooperation with the states who may have a firmer role in service delivery and in supporting regional planning and coordination. A clearer distinction between roles, for example, between funder and provider, seems a more sensible basis for reform discussion than an attempt to fully separate responsibilities within the health system. The likelihood of sharing overall responsibility for the health system also suggests there is a need to involve the states more fully in processes for setting national policies. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Podger, who has kindly agreed to take a couple of questions. So if anybody has a question, would you please indicate? Sam? Thank you, Professor. Uh, Sam. I'm not an expert in the issues around voluntary euthanasia. I just simply caution that they are very complicated, not just ethical issues, but medical and so on issues. Uh, I guess where I've, and, and, and I'm also conscious, I, I read, I don't know whether you saw the quarterly 
essay earlier this year on uh, the treatment of the very, very old and frail and concern that there can be, you can build a, an assumption that we shouldn't be spending money on these people because you know they're going to die anyway. And these are part of the really tricky issues involved. I guess where I've come from, I'm not just trying to duck the issue, uh, where I've come from is that I think that there is an important role to be played with palliative care. This ACT does that particularly well. Other jurisdictions don't do it so well. And I think that sort of investment where people can die with dignity, but not die because of absence of access to medical care if that's what they want. I think those things are more important. But the issue of euthanasia, I'm not saying it's only important, I'm just saying that isn't one where I'm willing to give a view. Thank you very much, Professor Podger. Russell McGowan from the Public Health Association, ACT branch. Um, hopefully my question won't be as difficult as uh, Sam's was to answer, uh, but it is complex as well, and it's to do with dental care and the way in which the Commonwealth and the states work together to meet a need that is um, not well met in Australia compared to other systems. We have a huge um, gap between uh, those that access the public health, uh, dental health services and those that can afford to access private health services. A huge gap in between. And this will increasingly have an impact on the health of older Australians um, because it has impacts on their more general medical health as well as just their oral health. So, so it has some links to what Sam was saying, is the age of the population is bringing this about. Do you think there is a way forward um, to have oral health measures uh, for the nation as a whole with cooperation between the Commonwealth and the states and who has to take the initiative in that? You mentioned earlier that the constitution gave a head of power to the Commonwealth for it, but they seem to be very reluctant to pick that up. Well, I've got no doubt the, the reluctance is because the, the costs may be very, very considerable. I suspect that uh, the, the, the right answer will require some revisiting of the co-payment issue. That if you're going to put dental services into the MBS arrangements, the Commonwealth would not be able to afford that, or at least they would claim they can't afford it, unless there is a considerable part of the cost is actually through a co-payment arrangement. You can, you know, governments have played with very small incremental steps. So under the Howard government, there was a move to try and cover the chronically ill and have them in the system. Personally, I thought it was a mistake by the Rudd-Gillard government to move away from that. I thought that was actually quite a sensible step and could have been then added to by some other steps over time. Uh, but the Rudd-Gillard government pulled out of that and had their own separate, uh, very small incremental step. But I think you're right, in principle, there's no reason why, why the dental services shouldn't be covered. But you have to think about the, the cost involved and whether a, re, a rethinking of the co-payments might work. It doesn't mean that the co-payments for everything need to be very high. There are certain cases where uh, a free service makes a lot of sense. That makes most sense amongst children school children and so on. So the old school dental service made, made a lot of sense. So I think there are, are incremental steps we could move in, in the track, but I suspect the cost 
obstacle means the idea of just putting it on the MBS uh, is not likely to be uh, entertained by governments of either persuasion. And the very last question, sir. I haven't touched in my lecture the workforce issues, but you're quite right to put your finger on a very big challenge. And in a number of places, our health workforce uh, is inflexible. And while some attempts have been made to try and uh, provide some flexibility, uh, there's some further distance to go. Uh, but you know, some of the steps have been taken include the changes to the primary health care arrangements, which has allowed many more practices to employ nurses than used to be the case. Um, but there are other aspects like you know, physician assistance and a range of other measures that can be taken to open up some flexibilities between the different professional groups uh, and allow some efficiency gains to be made over time. The Productivity Commission came out with some material on this some years ago, and I think there's probably more work to be done. The Commonwealth in my time did have a workforce uh, a task group uh, under the, the, the guy who then later became the chief medical officer, uh, and that was looking at the, the demand side um, and was trying to cover not just the medical professions, but also the other pr uh, professions and the nursing side. Uh, but you're right, there is a long way to, long way to go. Uh, some of the issues are not going to be saving money, some are going to cost money. I mean, the most obvious one in my mind on that would be the aged care area, where we're going to have to spend more to get more highly skilled people. The level of skills in aged care institutions is low, the turnover of staff is extremely high and we're going to have to work out a way to improve that situation. Uh, other cases, we are paying too much and we could save money uh, by having a more flexible arrangement. Thank you very much. I'd like to invite Committee Member Major General Michael Crane, DSC and Bar AM, to deliver the formal vote of thanks. Well, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what a great pleasure and a privilege it is for me to be invited uh, to deliver the thank you uh, to such a, uh, an eminent 
administrator and thinking, a thinker, particularly somebody who's steeped uh, so deeply in the issues that we've been considering tonight. Uh, Andrew, when you were talking about uh, federalism and describing the various challenges and the way that that's unfolded, I was reminded that that's actually a metaphor for the Order of Australia Association, so it was very apposite uh, that, you, that you talked about that in, in some depth tonight. Some of those challenges uh, are challenges that we've been grappling with in our own organisation, and of course more widely uh, around Australia, and you described some of the, uh, the changes that have taken place over the last century uh, or so in technology and globalisation and so forth, which are now causing us all to revisit uh, the way that our founding fathers set this up. So it is a, a challenge for all of us, I guess, right across Australia. Uh, you then turned to the, uh, the history of, of health reform. Uh, and as I was listening to that, I, I guess I couldn't help thinking that uh, maybe we are not yet where we want to be, but we've certainly come a long way. Uh, and when you compare it and where we are now to where some others are, then we perhaps aren't so badly off as sometimes we might think uh, that we are. Uh, listening to your description of the, the practical problems certainly struck home for me. I was talking to my uh, ageing mother and father only last night, uh, and I was asking mum actually how uh, they managed to afford all the health care that they've been uh, requiring for dad over the last couple of uh, months and indeed years, and she said, well, we don't need to worry about it now. We've racked up so many uh, visits and so many uh, pharmaceutical bills that we don't pay for very much of it at all anymore, at least the insurance covers, uh, certainly. So uh, th those kind of practical problems of the ageing population and how you deal with the chronically ill uh, are certainly uh, very real for us. Uh, as you then started to talk through some of the, uh, of the possible options to, uh, to improve where we are, uh, I was struck again by the complexity of all of this and the difficulty for governments uh, of all stripe in trying to strike the right balance uh, between the various things that you were talking about, state versus uh, federal, whether the focus should be on outcomes or on who pays and so on and so forth. A very, very difficult po uh, policy area. We're very grateful for you tonight rendering relatively simple. Uh, certainly to someone who uh, sees this only from the outside, it is a very, very complex policy area. Thanks for making it simple. Uh, thanks for your candour in answering the questions. And thank you again on behalf of the Association and all of us here uh, for delivering the 2015 Order of Australia Association at the ACT ANU address. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.